Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Kevin Hazard. He is the author of American Sirens the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics. I'm joined by 14 of my Harvard classmates. I'm Alden Briscoe, uh, grew up in New England, uh, lived in a bunch of places across the country now uh, outside of San Francisco in San Mateo, California. Okay, uh, Doug. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Doug Shapiro, uh, class of 63, like most of the rest of us. Um, I went to medical school at uh, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, uh, graduated from there in, uh, in 68. And at the time, uh, Case Western was considered, or at least considered itself to be a very forward-looking medical school. Uh, for example, uh, incoming freshmen were assigned to a family uh, a poor family in which uh, the, uh, the the woman in the family was pregnant, and we spent uh, time making home visits and so forth and so on. Gave me a chance to everyone else a chance to get acquainted with the with the family and the people and the living conditions uh, for people who couldn't afford regular health care. So I'm uh, very interested in what you you have to say today. Okay, uh, Peter. Um, yeah, Peter Grilly is my name. I um, I live in the town of Harvard, Massachusetts. Not the school, but the town. Um, I was class of '63 originally at Harvard, but graduated in '65. But I'm especially interested because some of my doctor friends began their medical careers as uh, EMS medics. Oh, hi, uh, John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, in my home state, but I lived in a small town across the state, but I'm uh, mainly uh, been an editor and uh, writer. Okay, Liz. Hi, um, I'm Liz Morey. I'm currently in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Um, I'm a almost fully retired clinical psychologist and spent much of my working life in Fresno, California. Uh, and um, I'm originally from California, and so I identify as a Californian. Uh, I'm currently working on trying to identify uh, people who are uh, descendants of people that I, my family enslaved in Virginia. And in fact, I'm going to meet one of them next Friday. Okay, uh, Ken. Hi, um, Ken Manister. I live in Los Altos, California, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, I'm originally from uh, Chicago, grew up on the south side of Chicago. And I'm now uh, retired as a, a professor of environmental law at Santa Clara University. Okay, David. Uh, David Othmer. I grew up in, in South America, mainly Puerto Rico, Guatemala, Brazil, and uh, went to Harvard with most of the rest of these guys and uh, um, spent most of my career in public broadcasting, both at WNET in New York City and WHYY in Philadelphia, where we still live. All righty. And uh, Bill. Okay, I'm in Aiken, South Carolina, class of 63. 
Navy 20 years, Westinghouse Electric for a while, then Westinghouse Savannah River Company, nuclear power guy cleaning up, you know, ran nuclear powered ships and then cleaning up nuclear waste and uh, retired now living with my wife here. Uh, Kevin, thank you for joining us and welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate it. So tell us about your life a little bit about the book mainly. All right. So, uh, yeah, I, um, back in 2016, uh, I wrote a memoir about the 10 years that I spent as a paramedic. Um, and shortly after that came out, I had some people reach out to me. Um, I had been a journalist before I started working on an ambulance, um, sort of lived in a bunch of different cities, uh, New York, Charleston, Atlanta, Los Angeles, kind of bumped around a bit. Um, we spent a good bit of time in Atlanta, and that's where I was working on an ambulance. After the book came out, uh, somebody reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we you know, read your book, enjoyed it. It's interesting to see, but do you know more about this other part of the history? Um, and that other part of the history that they're referring to was Freedom House. It's something I did not know. And as it turns out, something that very few people who have ever worked on an ambulance know and very few people in general are familiar with. Um, it's sort of a uh, piece of history that somehow got swept under the rug and has been and been forgotten. So I set out to write the book to kind of, you know, bring this story to the world. Um, and that's kind of a, that's sort of where we are now. If you, you, to go back to America in 1965, when this idea first began to percolate, um, you know, to, to, to shorten what is a you know, centuries-long story, the world had long been aware that something needed to be done about pre-hospital medicine. There needed to be a way to treat patients from where they got sick or where they got injured until they reached the doctor. Many people had tried. Nobody had done it in a concerted uh, way and had never really, we'd never quite figured it out. By 1965, this problem had reached epi epidemic proportions in the U.S. Um, there was a study that was released and it, it said, it's referred to now as the white paper, um, but it said that paramedics were too few to be there when you needed them and too unskilled to be of much use when they arrived. And to put a finer point on it, they pointed out that in 1965, more Americans were killed in highway accidents than had died in the entirety of the Korean War. And also in 1965, you were more likely to survive a gunshot wound in Vietnam than you were here in the States. The reason for this was obvious. And in Vietnam, in Korea, uh, you had corpsmen. And in the United States, you did not. And so people were dying of heart attacks and strokes. People were dying in car accidents. People were dying in all sorts of preventable ways uh, because there was no treatment from where it, where the injury started up until the hospital. So there was a physician by the name of Peter Saffer. And while the rest of the country was kind of, you know, the medical establishment was kind of wringing their hands a bit about what can we do with this thing and, and how do we fix this problem? Saffer said, well, I'll just come up with an idea and do it myself. And in the 1950s, uh, Peter Saffer became known as the father of CPR. So he's looking around at what at then was done for people who were not breathing. And essentially it was to flop them down on their face, press on their back, wiggle their arms like you would a turkey and hope that in all this movement, 
you pressed air into their lungs. Saffer, as a young anesthesiologist from Austria, looked at this problem and said, there's no way this thing works. And in fact, I'm, I'm so certain that it doesn't work that I'm going to stage a test. And so Saffer had this theory that expired air could keep people alive, that breathing into someone's mouth, which what today we would call rescue breaths, the first half of CPR, um, could keep you alive. And there were a lot of people who thought, well, no, you're going to you breathe out carbon dioxide. If you try to breathe into someone's mouth, you're not going to not only will you not keep them alive, but you'll kill them. And so Sapper's looking at what currently exists, which is this crazy roll them on their face, press in their back thing. And he's looking at his, this other idea of, well, what happens if we breathe into someone's mouth and actually breathe for them? He's convinced that rescue breathing can save lives. And so he stages a series of tests and he gets a bunch of volunteers and he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to state you and I'm going to paralyze you. And you're going to lie on the floor, not breathing for eight hours at a time over the course of 40 individual tests. And while you're not breathing and while you're paralyzed, I am going to use the method that I'm already convinced doesn't work to keep you alive. And when it starts to kill you, as I'm convinced it will, I'm going to bring in a Boy Scout to then use my rescue breathing technique to keep you alive again for eight hours over the course of 40 tests. So this is an absolutely... I mean, it's one of the most crazy ideas you could possibly imagine, but this is how, one, how confident he was in himself, but also how dedicated he was to furthering medical knowledge, that he believed that he was right, and he took it to extreme measures to do it. So in the late 1950s in Baltimore, he stages this, these series of tests. He records them, and he you know, has all the data in 58. He does a world tour and basically pulls aside the medical, uh, you know, the medical establishment of, of any country who will listen, shows the data, shows the films, and the world is convinced CPR um, is, is effective. It saves lives. And overnight, we go from this crazy pressing on the back, flopping the arms method to CPR. He did that single-handedly. So, so this is the sort of person that you're dealing with. Peter Saffer, incredibly smart, incredibly confident, and incredibly driven, has no problem going right at established moors and dumping them on their head. So in 1965, after having established CPR, he's living in Pittsburgh, where he was asked to start an anesthesiology program. So anesthesiology through the 1960s is a pretty new field, and not a lot of people are in it. Saffer got into it specifically because he knew this was an area, because it was so new and untested, this was an area that sort of a, uh, a, a very, you know, rogue, um, uh, you know, experimental doctor like himself could really make his mark. So he gets to Pittsburgh and he sees this study come out that says that, you know, you're more likely to survive a gunshot wound in Vietnam than you are in the United States. And he knows that there has to be a way to fix this. So he spends months, and this is while he's running an anesthesiology department, while he's running a massive resident program and a fellowship program, he designs the world's first paramedic curriculum. And it involve, involves cardiac emergencies and respiratory emergencies, OB emergencies, trauma, seizures, strokes, heart attacks, a full spectrum of emergencies that, that somebody could face in an emergency room and he distills that information down to what somebody on an ambulance, a lay person on an ambulance could be taught to do. So he devises this program. 
Then he looks at the vehicle that they're driving in and he knows that, you know, there's a best case scenario. There's five or six minutes where you have to be in a vehicle driving best case scenario. And what did people have to that point? You had volunteer firefighters and some kind of a truck. You had police who were running medical emergencies, often in paddy wagons, or you had funeral homes that were running these calls and hearses. I mean, literally morticians that would be embalming bodies one night and transporting them the next. So he says, okay, none of these vehicles are going to work. So he, out of whole cloth, invents the modern ambulance. I mean, every aspect of what it is, what is in an ambulance today, he designed. So the layout of the stretcher, the layout of the seats, wall-mounted suction, where you would put the oxygen, the sort of drugs and equipment that this thing would need. He designed this entire thing. So he's got, now he has a training program and he has the equipment, he has the drugs and he has the vehicle. He has everything except for the people. He has this great idea and he's all set to take it out, but he has nobody to do it. Well, simultaneous to Peter Saffer developing the paramedic curriculum, there's an organization in Pittsburgh called Freedom House. And Freedom House's mandate was to provide job opportunities or job training opportunities for people living in this neighborhood called the Hill District. Up until the 1950s, the Hill District in Pittsburgh was Watts, was Harlem, was the south side of Chicago. It was a poor to working class, almost entirely black neighborhood um, that had for quite a while been sort of slipping into disrepair. So during the um, what, what, what Pittsburgh referred to as Renaissance. So it was it's sort of as urban renewal projects were happening around the country, you know, building highways, building civic centers, universities, medical systems. Um, Pittsburgh decided to do the same thing. And where they wanted to put it was in the Hill District. So they scraped this entire neighborhood right down to the dirt, displaced about 8,000 human beings with no plan for what to do with them. So homes were torn down, businesses were torn down, schools were torn down, churches were torn down. And what went in its place was a highway and a civic center and the parking lot for the civic center. So all these people then had to squeeze into existing black neighborhoods. So overcrowding in housing was a result, overcrowding in schools was a result. Um, You had joblessness, you had poverty, you had basically hopelessness in the Hill District. So by the 1960s, the Hill had gone from, you know, a lower to working class neighborhood that had a lot of culture. Um, you know, they had jazz clubs that the entire jazz community went to, Louis Armstrong, Lena Horne, everybody passed through the Hill District. It is now simply a depressed area with no opportunity for the people living there. So Freedom House, is, again, nonprofit organization with the idea of providing job training programs for the people in the neighborhood. Problem is they have plenty of unemployed people. They don't have a good job opportunity for them. The only thing that they had been offered up to that point were jobs as maintenance workers or as landscapers or housekeepers. These were not necessarily inspiring careers. So you have Freedom House on one hand, who has all these young people who are looking for a job opportunity, who live in an economically depressed neighborhood. On the other side of town, you've got this physician who's developed this incredible, and frankly, an ingenious idea to bring the emergency room out into the street and treat patients where they lie, but he doesn't have any people to carry it out. 
through sort of a wonderful bit of kismet, these two groups meet. And the guys from Freedom House approach Peter Saffer about a very modest idea. And when they walk into his office, Saffer immediately recognizes that this could be the opportunity he's waiting for. And he, like he did with his CPR training, he did not want to bring in medical professionals. He wanted to bring in lay people. He wanted to show that if you lived in New York or Seattle or San Francisco or Miami, but also if you lived in Houston or Columbus or, you know, uh, Jacksonville, that you could stage something exactly like this, that it didn't, it did not incredibly well-trained people. It took people who had the right training, not people who had the best training. So he sees a group of, of young men, most of them without high school diplomas, um, but who desperately needed an opportunity. And in him, they saw uh, a, a way in which the world would finally have to pay um, and so they agreed to, to his training program. Um, it took about eight months, uh, five days a week. They worked nights. They worked weekends sometimes. Um, they had an incredibly rigorous academic uh, portion, classroom portion that they lost. They had about 35 students start out. About 10 of them dropped out. Um, when they were finished with the classroom section, they went to the ORs. They went to the ER. They went to the ICU. They went into the morgue to watch um, autopsies. They went into the OB wing to help with deliveries. I mean, this is a fully trained core of what the world would eventually come to be paramedics, but that word did not even exist yet. Again, these guys in the midst of this training are quite literally inventing a career path. So they finished their training in the spring of 1968. And the first calls that they ran were during... Um, the uh, the you know violence that followed the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. So he shot April fourth, nineteen sixty eight. Violence breaks out around Pittsburgh. Uh, these guys are sort of conscripted out of school a little bit early, and they begin working. But instantly, it is quite obviously a success. So the world's first paramedics um, by design were twenty four black men from the city of Pittsburgh. Um, particularly from the Hill District neighborhood. And, you know, this is something that nobody up to that point was doing. So about a year later, Los Angeles rolls out a paramedic program. Um, Freedom House's medics had 300 hours of training. Los Angeles had about 180. Other cities begin to start rolling out similar programs. They either borrow from it or just take the entire program and bring it over. Um, a study is done in 1970 to evaluate the first year and a half of work. And there were three entities that were performing EMS in the city of Pittsburgh at that point. One was the volunteer fire department. One was the police department and one was Freedom House. And they wanted to see how good these guys were, how all these groups were doing in emergency calls. And what they found was that when they had a critical patient, the volunteer fire department did the wrong thing. 87% of the time. The police with a critical patient did the wrong thing 60% of the time. And Freedom House with a critical patient did the right thing 78% of the time. So straight out of the gates, this training, this equipment, the new ambulances, it was quite obvious that it worked. So they start getting invitations to travel to other U.S. cities. Um, they went as far as Mainz, Germany, 
Um, they would put on demonstrations. They would lay out the training curriculum. They would show the, the drugs, the equipment, the ambulances themselves to other municipalities for them to evaluate. Uh, after the conference in Mainz, Germany, the doctors who had assembled, it was, a, it was an international group of, of critical care doctors. And what they determined after having seen everything that Freedom House, all the evidence of what Freedom House did, what they determined was that with a critical patient in the street, there was no drop off in care from a well-trained and properly equipped paramedic versus a physician in the exact situation. So a doctor in the street with all the same equipment and medications could perform just as well as a paramedic, which was considering how early this was in the process, a massive validation of what these guys were up to. So it, it's quite clear um, just how effective this program is. And, and again, many other cities begin to adopt what they do. So in about 1970, a new mayor was elected for the city of Pittsburgh. Um, and he very quickly began to sort of try to unwind a lot of what the program had done. So he cut their operating budget in half and began to place various restrictions on them and to openly question their efficacy in the media. So, you know, he suggested that it wasn't viable to practice medicine in a moving vehicle. He suggested that, uh, that nobody else was doing this sort of thing, that, that, that this was an unneeded expense. Um, he suggested that, you know, it, it, it was uh, a very controversial idea to allow non-doctors to perform this level of medicine on patients. And, you know, at each of these points, and, you know, that luckily the, the fight became public. So we, we have all the, you know, all the documentation that's, it was in the newspapers. It was, it was on television. I mean, it was, it was a very public fight. Uh, at each turn, the doctors who were involved, particularly Peter Saffer, showed all the reasons why the mayor's objections were wrong. Um, and it reached a point after several years of, of, of fighting that the people from Freedom House kind of looked at one another and said, there's, there's no reason for us still to be getting this much pushback other than the fact that we are an all-Black paramedic corps. So, you know, they had been accepted in Columbus. They had been accepted in Jacksonville. They had been accepted in Miami and Dallas and Chicago, all over the country. The one place where they were really, really up against a tough city government that absolutely did not want them was the place where the idea was born. And the only difference between Pittsburgh and every other city in America was that the medics in Pittsburgh were nearly entirely black. Um, in 1975, the program, because of years of uh, financial constraints and official uh, obstruction was kind of on its last legs. And Peter Saffer, who had developed this program, um, wasn't sure what to do. He wasn't sure how to keep it alive. And he was brought on to, um, it was a small group of people uh, that worked with President Gerald Ford. And Ford wanted to create a standardized training program for paramedics. And he assigned the work to the Department of Transportation. And he said, I want you guys 
working in conjunction with a small group of doctors to select a single ambulance service somewhere in the country that can develop and field test and then roll out a standardized training program for all of America's medics. Essentially, create or identify who is the national standard. So Saffer sees what's happening and he realizes whatever organization is chosen as the standard will certainly be very hard to destroy. So he brings in a doctor named Nancy Caroline. As I said earlier, um, Nancy was a Radcliffe graduate. Um, she went to med school at Case Western and she arrived in Pittsburgh uh, after finishing her residency in Cleveland. She was very inexperienced and she was young, but she was incredibly energetic and she was a contrarian. So when she arrived, um, people started, um, you know, Safford said, well, hey, maybe maybe you can run this program. She didn't know what an ambulance was. She didn't know what a paramedic was, but she heard her. Um, she heard other physicians saying, you don't want this thing. It's going to be too hard. There's no way you can do this. And so that was kind of enough evidence for Nancy to say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to accept this position, even though I have no idea what it does um, or what it is. And, uh, and so she accepts the job. The problem is she's a young white Jewish girl from Massachusetts, and she is now in charge of a group of young black men from the Hill District. You know, she you know, sort of describes herself as, you know, short, and and you know innocent looking and and she's like you know i'm faced every day with these you know big guys with afros and beards she's intimidated she's not sure what to make of them they're very skeptical they're not sure what to make of her they don't think that she could possibly understand them she's convinced that she doesn't understand them nor does she understand what they do um and she has no idea how she's going to make this work but she knows that she has to because this organization is sort of on its last legs so she puts a cot in the crew room. She sleeps there every night. Um, she runs calls with them. She goes on every call that they go on. Uh, she works incredibly hard to uh, get to know them and get and gain their trust, which eventually they do. They see how hard she works. They see how she's in this just as much as they are. And, uh, and it, they become incredibly close. Um, she is the first doctor to really bridge the gap between the paramedics at Freedom House and the physicians that were working in the hospitals. Um, you know, up until that point, there had been quite a, quite a wide, you know, chasm, uh, culturally speaking. I mean, in the 1960s, you know, a lot of physicians were well-to-do and white. Um, none of these guys were, and there had, there'd never been a great connection between the doctors who sort of administered to the program and the people who actually did the job. Um, because of the way Nancy worked and just threw herself right into it and actually was on the calls and eating with them, sleeping with them, living with them. Um, she got to know them and, and, you know, again, they trusted her, she trusted them. So she institutes a new training program. She gets them about as good as you could possibly be. She holds a symposium for an international group of doctors. And in the summer of 1975, they are selected by the Department of Transportation as the standard for um, ambulance training and work in the country. And immediately on the heels of that declaration, um, the mayor of Pittsburgh closed down their program and uh, replaced them with an entirely white paramedic corps. Um, and 
he realized uh, after having done that, that somebody was going to have to run this program. And so he turned to Nancy and he said, okay, you know, I, I need, I need you to run this new paramedic program. And she said, absolutely. I'll do it. But in order to do that, you've got to hire every single one of my paramedics. And so in the fall of 1975, the freedom house medics formally joined um, the city of Pittsburgh. It was not an easy transition. They had a lot of trouble, um, being accepted uh, in Pittsburgh, but the the people who stayed, um, some of them quit, but the people who stayed went on to have long careers in medicine. Some became chiefs within the department. Others went back and got uh, master's, PhD. Some became doctors. Um, one went to Ohio and ran the public safety departments in both Cleveland and Columbus and went on to become uh, a, a state senator. So that it was a... They were a tremendously successful group of people who, you know, did an incredibly difficult job at a time when nobody knew what the job was or was convinced the job even needed to exist. <clears throat> Certainly um, was not convinced that these were the people that ought to be doing it. And yet in the face of tremendous obstacles, um, they were wildly successful and quite literally uh, birthed what we know today as paramedics. Fascinating. <laughs> what actually is the, uh, I mean, what is the skill set of a, of a paramedic as such? I mean, is it, would you, would you say, what would you say? Yeah, so um, much like uh, the 67 training program, um, the idea of a paramedic is to, The point of it is to be able to be the front line of attack in a critical situation. So let's just say somebody's having a heart attack. The first five steps of treatment are always something that a paramedic will do. Um, if somebody's having an asthma attack, the first four or five steps of treatment is something that a paramedic would do. Um, if somebody has been shot, Again, this first few steps or something. So the idea is um, you, you take a, the full spectrum of things that can happen. And as I said, heart attacks, strokes, seizures, respiratory emergencies, someone who has been uh, shot, someone who has been bludgeoned or hit by a car, um, someone who is giving birth at home. All of these things that are life-threatening, the role of the paramedic is to do the the attack all the things that will kill that patient first and improve those initial conditions so that when you arrive at the emergency room, rather than a patient that is dying or about to die, you have a patient that is saved or about to be saved. And you can, you know, take, for instance, um, you know, like we started out with a heart attack. So somebody's having chest pain, they call 911. Paramedics walk through the door. They give the aspirin. They run a 12 lead EKG, which can tell whether or not there's a heart attack happening and specifically where the heart attack is happening. They can give nitroglycerin. They can give morphine. Um, should that person stop breathing, they can intubate them, which is, you know, a skill that only other than a paramedic only physician can do. Um, they are trained to read cardiac dysrhythmia so they can shock patients that are in uh, V-fib or VTAC. And, um, you know, they would be the ones that they give, uh, narcotics for pain. 
They give sedatives for people who are having a psychotic episode or who are violent. Um, they give medications for women, uh, a pregnant woman who has high blood pressure. You give the medications uh, to bring that blood pressure down. Somebody is having, someone is having a seizure. You give those benzodiazepines to stop the seizure. Somebody's having an overdose. You give the drugs Narcan um, to reverse the effects of the overdose. Uh, if someone's in full cardiac arrest, you would intubate them. You would shock them. You would do CPR. You would give all the drugs, the epinephrine and the amiodarone and the lidocaine, all the drugs that you would give in a hospital in a cardiac arrest, uh, paramedics would give. So paramedics are generally partnered with an EMT. Um, the, the, the easiest way to look at that is imagine the EMT is the nurse and the paramedic is the doctor. That's sort of the, the relationship between the two. And um, there's a, a, an incredibly wide range of emergencies um, that they're trained and, and equipped to deal with. You, could you say something about in the earliest days of Freedom House, what was the, the communication circuit? If the medical establishment was skeptical, the police were skeptical, everybody was skeptical about this new service. How did the when the first call came in of a medical emergency, where did it go? Who, who called who? Who finally called in the Freedom House people? How did the communications work? Sure. Well, it's worth noting um, that the first neighborhoods that they were allowed to, to run calls in were in Black neighborhoods. Um, so they were not allowed to treat white patients in the sort of the wealthier areas of town, um, which in the irony there is they got so good at what they did that people living, I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with Pittsburgh, but there are neighborhoods like Squirrel Hill that are, um, you know, wealthier parts of town. They started looking around saying, wait a minute, <laughs> why, why don't we have this incredible medical care? So, you know, the, the, the initial resistance that people had kind of, you know, suddenly that, that, that got turned around quite quickly. Um, so there were several neighborhoods that Freedom House ambulances would operate in. And what would happen is if you had an emergency and you called the police, uh, that call would go to the police dispatcher and the dispatcher would determine where the, the emergency was. And if it was in one of the two, originally two, eventually became three, but if it was in one of the two or three neighborhoods that Pittsburgh opera, or excuse me, that Freedom House operated in, they would transfer the call to a Freedom House dispatcher and they were based at uh, Presbyterian University Hospital, part of the Pitt Medical Center, what today is referred to as UPMC, you know, massive um, hospital system in Pittsburgh and uh, they would write it down they would scribble it out on a piece of paper and hand it to the medics as they ran out the door and they would uh, they would drive off to deal with the emergency is, is there a difference uh, Kevin between what an EMT is that a paramedic an emergency medical technician yeah so an EMT um, is is similar uh, uh, you could say um, the easiest way to shorthand it is imagine a paramedic is a doctor and an EMT as a nurse. So an EMT just has a lower amount of training. They don't read cardiac rhythms. They don't deliver the drugs. They don't innovate. Um, but is they or an EMT. Paramedic. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I lost a connection. Wait. Yeah. Yeah, well, my I have a son who was an EMT for a while, but I, he didn't have the kind of training you've been talking about. Gotcha, yeah. 
Doug. Yes, so uh, maybe I can give you a little bit of uh, a background information about Case Western Reserve's medical training uh, back at the time that Nancy Carolyn was uh, at school there. And then I'll tell you a little uh, episode that I uh, went through myself. Uh, but, Real quick, uh, did you um, did you have your uh, interview with, was it Cactus Jack? The guy? Um, absolutely. <laughs> I've read a lot about him. I'd be curious if, if while you're talking about it, if you could describe him a little bit, because um, in, when I was at the uh, Schlesinger Library at Harvard, I came across a bunch of information about him and Nancy's papers, and he just seemed like an incredibly colorful figure. Well, yeah, he was a, a famous dean at the Western, Case Western Reserve Medical School, and uh, he liked uh, Harvard grads. And uh, so he would always uh, interview a lot of Harvard grads who were applying to medical school there and so forth and so on. Very outgoing guy, uh, very far reaching. And I think he had a big influence over the uh, medical training program there. But one of the interesting things is, I mean, I went to medical school there. I started in 1964 and as freshman medical students, before we knew anything about medicine, basically, we were assigned to a, a pregnant woman uh, from one of the less prosperous uh, areas of town. Uh, and uh, this woman was going to be our patient for the next year and a half. And we would follow her through the pregnancy and then follow the early development in the first year of life of her, of her, her, her child. And part of what we had to do is we would make home visits. So we kind of would go into the home, meet the family, uh, see the, the conditions of the, the household and so forth. And get some sense of the problems that the uh, family was uh, having to live through. And then when the woman had medical issues, instead of calling her physician, she would call me, that is to say the medical student, and we would then call a physician and the physician would tell us what to tell her. So we were sort of intermediary. Um, anyway, uh, Nancy Carolyn would have gone through all of this training and background. And so she would have had some familiarity. I don't know what she was like personally at all but she would have some familiarity uh, with life in the more difficult parts of, uh, of Cleveland. And uh, this would have been kind of bred into her through Case Western Reserve's medical training. And I can tell you my, my personal kind of experience several years later, uh, I was living in, the, in the, 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 the District of Columbia area and uh, my girlfriend and I lived in an apartment that was on a street that was um, right on the borderline between a wealthy area of the district and uh, kind of a poor, mostly black area. Uh, and the street was a, a kind of a combination of people from both, both areas. And one summer evening, uh, I think it was just almost getting dark and the street lights were on and I walked out of the apartment and it was this wonderfully interesting kind of street scene because there were a lot of young people all around out on the streets and some kids were playing uh, a, a kind of a ball game and so forth. And 
it was a, a kind of initially a very kind of positive kind of scene. Uh, but then I looked around and there on the sidewalk, not too far from, from where I was, uh, there was a young man lying on his back uh, and not moving. And so I went up to this, uh, this, this guy. He was unconscious. He was breathing, but he wasn't moving much air in and out. His chest was moving, but, you know, I put my ear down. I could, could barely hear any air coming in. So I, I sent my girlfriend into the apartment to get my kind of black bag with the stethoscope. In the meantime, I started mouth-to-mouth -mouth respiration for, the, for this guy. Uh, and uh, to make a long story short, I continued to do this. And I had her call for, you know, an ambulance or whatever the ER service was there at the time. Uh, and they came and picked him up and the kid survived. It was a drug overdose. Uh, and, you know, the next day I went to the hospital to find out what was going on with him. And, you know, anyway, it was a very interesting kind of kind of scene. But I, it never occurred to me at the time that the people in the ambulance, I, I knew nothing at all about what kind of training or background they had or whether they were competent or not competent. But obviously, after they took him away, they kept him alive until he got to the hospital. So they must have had some kind of training. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it definitely was a mixed bag. Um, you know, interestingly enough, speaking of overdoses, um, because Peter Saffer was an anesthesiologist, he, uh, there was a, in the mid-70s, early, early to mid-70s, there was a heroin epidemic that reached Western Pennsylvania. People were bringing it from New York and it had finally made its way to Pittsburgh. And there were a rash, there was a rash of overdoses. And so Saffer said, well, um, we're already, you know, we, we use a drug in the, in the OR called Narcan to reverse the effects of anesthesia. And you could use the same thing to reverse the effects of heroin. So he trained the paramedics to use it. And so the very first use of Narcan in the field to reverse a heroin overdose was Freedom House paramedics. And it was done at the, uh, you know, at the insistence of, of Peter Saffer, who, who knew the drug because of, of his specialty. Um, that's one of those interesting cases where drug overdose death, deaths start going down in black neighborhoods while they're going up in white neighborhoods. And people look around and say, well, what's going on? And the white neighborhoods had, had police officers who were not very well trained or equipped. Most of these guys were later in their career who were just trying to ride out to a pension and maybe had about as much training as a lifeguard at a local pool. But that training would have been years ago and had no equipment. And um, they would just pick people up, toss them in the back. Neither would ride with them and they would just drive straight to the hospital. So. People are dying in, in nice neighborhoods. They're living in not so nice neighborhoods. And the difference was uh, the training and equipment of, of these guys on these ambulances. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, just a, a comment and then a question. Uh, I'm not shocked by the prejudice that uh, the mayor and perhaps city council showed during the 1970s. That doesn't surprise me at all. Mm -hmm. What does surprise me is how recent all of this is in terms of paramedics and knowing how to resuscitate people. Um, my God, I'm glad I didn't need one in the 40s and 50s or who knows what the hell would have happened. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a shock to me how recent all of this is. My question is, <clears throat> and I've had the pleasure like Liz to be in an ambulance, 
But how the devil do you determine whether or not you're going to have an EMT or a paramedic? That just the luck of the draw? Well, it depends. It depends on where you are. Um, I think a lot of larger cities has at least one paramedic per ambulance. Um, so you should, if you're in a smaller town, that might not be the case. Um, in larger cities, that is uh, uh, almost always the case that you'll get at least one paramedic. So generally speaking, you should have that. Um, uh, you know when you, uh, when you when you get a call, I, and I will say, you know, it's it is funny. You look at the development of pre-hospital medicine. It went in fits and starts through the years. There are various periods where it seemed like all sorts of progress was being made. Um, you know, in the 1830s, during one of London's cholera epidemics. It was, that's the first time that anyone had done hospital-based ambulance service. Um, in the mid-19, or excuse me, yeah, the mid-19th century, Bellevue started to get a very progressive ambulance service. Uh, at following World War One, we came home. It was the first time that medics were trained in triage and, and were delivering care like traction splints and morphine um, and were using radio communication. Each time that we had these advances, it was always a drawback. It was always sort of a, a slow retreat. Um, and it's one of the very frustrating things when you when you go through the history to see that at one point there were there was this thing that started to happen and then kind of went away. And, it, you know, that is, uh, you know, that, that is the, you know, the, the history of, of you know, sort of the confounding part of this history. Thank you. Well, Kevin, let me, uh, we've been going for about an hour and 10 minutes now. Qu quick last question. How, uh, how did your book do American Siren and how, what are your projects now? What are you working on now? Sure. Well, the book is, uh, it's just been out a couple of weeks, but so far it's been doing really well. Um, re the reviews have been great. The, uh, the response has been great. Um, you know, it's been, you know, I think a lot of people are quite surprised by this history. It is quite remarkable that how recent it is um you know i i it, it think kind of blows everybody's mind um that there's this incredible advance that we all rely on so much that until just recently did not exist at all um so it's been all that's been really great uh i am working on a new project i'm still kind of trying to get my arms around it but it takes place um in los angeles in the 50s and 60s um and it's sort of it it's it's about the intersection of uh of medicine and law enforcement um and uh again i'm still kind of trying to piece together exactly what it is but it's um it's a pretty fascinating story okay Mar marcy had her hand up but she didn't raise it again <clears throat> oh marcy go ahead thank you john yeah. um currently do you know kevin um whether police and fire departments and other entities vie for who's going to provide emergency services for a city and could could the recruitment be different depending on uh which union and which agency uh gets gets the job <laughs> yeah it's uh that's that's an ongoing debate. You know, like I said, in Atlanta, where it's hospital based, but the fire department is sort of always trying to take over. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't know if fire chiefs in most places are, are pretty powerful folks. And um, I don't think they like the idea that, you know, a big chunk of 
emergency response is handled by somebody else. So in cities where it's not fire, there's usually an effort by the fire department to take it over. Police have pretty much completely stepped out of it. Um, it is more now either private ambulance services, hospital-based services, or fire-based services. And um, in terms of which one is best, I mean, I somebody goes into a job to be a firefighter, that is a vastly different job than um, treating a child that has an asthma attack. Um, I don't personally, I don't really see the correlation between fighting fires and, and treating medical emergencies. And I, I think we'd be better off separating the two. Um, you know, you wouldn't send a cop to put out a firefighter or to put out a fire, even though they both drive cars with lights and they both respond to emergencies. They're responding to vastly different emergencies. So uh, I, I would like to see EMS be, be its own thing. And it's, it's definitely an ongoing fight. Mm-hmm. But we always do have to sure say the fund. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's 100%. 100%. And speaking, speaking about Cheshire sure, sure, the fund, one of the things that's happening, and my nephew was head of the Alameda County uh, um, Medical or um, the uh, Medical Department, and he, one of the things he realized was that there were fewer and f- there are fewer and fewer fires now, and fewer and fewer need for fire people. And what his argument was, hey, you guys got better get trained in being EMTs because otherwise you're going to be out of work. Yeah, mm. yeah, I think that's been a driving force in firefighting fire departments getting involved in ems because you know the change in fire codes and it's just fires aren't what they used to be um they don't happen as often and whereas medical calls are dropping all day long <clears throat> well thank you so much for coming on oh yeah. thank you i really appreciate it it's been wonderful to talk with you guys yeah thank you thank, thank you. you good luck everybody thank you so much. That was Kevin Hazard, author of American Sirens, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.